0: This episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast is sponsored by Baker Academic, presenting Colossians and Philemon by G.K. Beale, a must-have commentary for pastors and scholars. Learn more at bakeracademic.com. This is the Gospel Coalition podcast, where we seek to renew the contemporary church in the ancient gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. You'll often hear people connected to the Gospel Coalition critique so-called seeker-sensitive churches, and for good reason. We don't survey unbelievers to find out what we should do in church. Much has been lost in discipleship from a mistaken effort to treat Sunday mornings like evangelistic meetings. It's hard to teach the cost of discipleship when you're trying to make everyone feel comfortable. At the same time, we can understand why seeker churches took off in popularity. TGC doesn't simply propose turning back the clock before the megachurch boom of the 1970s and 1980s. Rather, in this time and place where fewer and fewer have experience with church or knowledge of scripture, we must labor to make the gospel message understandable, and we must be welcoming as we see our churches through the eyes of outsiders, who are so often bewildered by our peculiar practices and vocabulary." My guest on today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast is Eric Raymond. He is senior pastor of Redeemer Fellowship Church outside Boston and a TGC blogger. He is also the writer and presenter of Gospel Shaped Outreach, a small group video and book study published by TGC with The Good Book Company. Uh, Our conversation and Gospel Shaped Outreach are going to be based on point two of our theological vision for ministry at TGC, Evangelistic Effectiveness. We're going to talk about how gospel-centered churches can grow in this Priority of Evangelism. Eric, thank you for joining me on the Gospel Coalition podcast.
1: Hey, my pleasure, Colin. Good to talk with you.
0: Eric, you've recently moved from Omaha to Boston. Does evangelism look different in one place compared to the other?
1: Yeah, in in many ways it's the same, and in some ways it's different, right? So you still have people that don't know Christ, and you still want to talk to them about the, the content of the gospel, and you want to urge people to believe it. You want to try to persuade people to repent and believe the gospel. Um, And in Omaha, for example, people were uh, really inclined to talk. Uh, So people were very open, just have a conversation. People would talk to you on the street or whatever. Uh, But people there were real familiar with Christianity and even evangelical Christianity. So it wouldn't be uncommon to to meet somebody that was another church member or they were another church in a different part of the city or had grown up Christian, gone to VBS or something like that. So it wasn't like you were... um, you know talking a different language to them but in in Boston i, I find that people are, are a lot less inclined to talk i mean everybody's you know got their earbuds in or they got their phone out and there's people everywhere but people aren't really talking uh, and if you if you do have the opportunity to talk with somebody i i find that people are very unfamiliar with the gospel and so i i think once you once you get to talking with people uh, there's a lot of curiosity and i've had a lot of interesting conversations so um, you know, same needs, um, same same issues, but in terms of uh, people's backgrounds and familiarity with Christianity, it's their worlds apart. And so, and then even with the universities all over the place and all of the industries that we have here, um, you know, there's people from all over the world. So then you're meeting people that are new from other countries, and there's this curiosity about Christianity. So if you, if you talk to them and they say, oh, you know, I've read about Christianity, I want to learn about it. There's a tremendous openness to just listening to what it is. So I find that to be a difference from where we were in Omaha. But then another area which would be um, heightened here, uh, it was somewhat felt in Omaha, but it was more, more so here, is the tremendous distrust um, from people towards organized religion uh, because of the controversies in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, it, it, it reminds me of the kind of the burnt over district after the Second Great Awakening. Uh, the hard soil is doubly hard when you're talking to people who have been, you know, maybe altar boys or uh, members of a, a Catholic church where one of those scandals broke out. Uh, there's just a, a tremendous distrust. So I, I think that, when you when you put all those things together, there's there's certain nuances there that that require some um, careful listening and engagement with the gospel.
0: So. Point two on evangelism, evangelistic effectiveness it says that the gospel produces people who do not disdain those who disagree with them. But Eric, I sure see a lot of people who talk a lot about the gospel and really seem to hate people, especially people who disagree with them about politics. What does that do for our evangelistic effectiveness?
1: Yeah, I definitely don't think it helps, right? Evangelism's hard enough as it is without adding any... Extra unnecessary impediments to it. Um, I, I think about the Lord Jesus when He was asked about matters of the law, and He summarized it. He He said, "You need to love God and love your neighbor." Right. So, if if one mark of being a Christian is is to love other people, I, I kind of I have a hard time seeing how we can obey the teachings of Christ while conducting ourselves in a manner that seems to be by reasonable peoples standards hatred right so if you're thinking about politics um, I, I just don't know I'm confused why people spend our limited relational capital in this area right I mean why are we why are we using up the limited supply of capital in the conversations to to fight about politics with people or even um, to to be characterized with hatred in that area I mean as a Christian I don't want I don't want to be I don't want politics or those other issues to be the things that I that I find my identity in. I don't want people to be confused that that's where I find my identity, and uh, it's not my ultimate purpose here, right? Uh, if if one's political engagements or discussions undermine the gospel, then I think it's wise to reevaluate why we're interacting and how we're interacting. Um, so I, I think if it's if it's hindering gospel effectiveness, I think it's wise to take another look at it.
0: We're also encouraged in this section of our Theological Vision for Ministry to, quote, winsomely address people's hopes and aspirations with Christ and His saving work, unquote. Now, I think we could probably both identify some ways that might masquerade as winsomeness, but not actually is. Um, we're not talking here about hiding what we believe or being ashamed of what we believe or changing what we believe. So what does it mean to be winsome in evangelism?
1: Right. So, I mean, if we're just thinking definition winsome, being being attractive or appealing with it. So, I mean, we're, we I think we back up and we say, look, the gospel itself is good news but it's also offensive before it becomes good news for the one who is going to believe it. So I mean we're telling people that we're imperfect, we're basically spiritual failures, we need a savior and you're we're in a mess and you're in a mess by your own making and you can't get out of it. I mean how humbling is that? It, it, it's it that is offensive. Uh, but it doesn't mean that we as evangelists need to be offensive. I mean it's been said many times the gospel's offensive, we don't have to be. Offense of ourselves, uh, we can prevent. We can present the gospel in a way that's faithful and winsome. So, I think one of the ways we do that is, is by listening to people as we're talking with them. So often, it's like we got to get through our checklist, or we just got to run through our main gospel points, our alliterations, our outlines, or just kind of do the data dump on somebody with the gospel. Uh, and then when we do that, we're oftentimes not even listening to what they're saying. Um, if we're listening to people. We we can hear how they they might be particularly hungry, and how the um, the counterfeit gods, so to speak, have have not satisfied them. We can find out where they're hurting and feeling guilt and shame from sin and bad choices, and just going through the world as as it is. Um, and so we can we can faithfully and and I think winsomely press upon the particular areas where the gospel might apply in a particular way. And so uh, by listening and and hearing people in their pain and their hurt. And then maybe even restating things back and asking questions and then applying the gospel and showing how Christ is the, the, the ultimate answer. I mean, it's, it's not in any way to, to edit the gospel like you're saying. I mean, that would, that's not what I'm advocating at all, but rather just to listen and hear where people might be broken and show them how the gospel actually makes people new through the Lord Jesus Christ.
0: Test drive something on you, Eric, okay? I just All thought right. of, th- thought about this. You tell me if it, if it works or if it's accurate. Um, we know that there's bad news before there's good news. Maybe part of what we're talking about here is it's often difficult to start to convince somebody that they are bad, at least in places like where you are, people who are upwardly mobile, people who have been taught a lot of self-esteem. It's a bit difficult to come at them with the whole you're a sinner angle. Now it's true and you've got to get there because without there there's mm-hmm. no without that there's no repentance. But maybe a way of saying is that we start with their bad news and then take them to the gospel from there as opposed to starting with the bad news of them being sinners. Is that possible? Is that wrong? Like I said, I'm just test driving yeah. this.
1: No, I don't I don't think it's wrong. I mean you I mean anytime you're listening to somebody and you're able to, to pinpoint on those issues. I mean, if you've gotten to the place where somebody's communicating on past failures or present brokenness or shattered dreams and talking through that and being able to make that connection, I mean, it's it's incredibly valuable. Um, I mean, everybody everybody's experiencing the effects of, of sin and the curse. Uh, we don't speak in those terms oftentimes, but to be able to make that connection and show it to a bigger picture, I think that's invaluable. I mean, and Paul's doing some of that in Acts 17, right? He's yeah. listening to the people, he's observing the the temple, he's observing the worship, and he's he's hearing the chatter, and he just enters right into that, and he's he sees the the brokenness and he sees the weak spot, and he presses on it, uh, and graciously and faithfully, uh, you might say, winsomely, and makes it attractive.
0: So. Straightforward question. Would want to know your answer. What's the most effective thing you or your church does in evangelism?
1: All right. So the answer might surprise you. I don't. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Try me. But I. I think. I think without a question, the weekly Sunday gathering. I think Sunday morning at ten o'clock is is the best thing that we do for evangelism. And l- let me explain why. So on Sunday morning, we we identify together as followers of Christ, right? So we come together we got people from different backgrounds, different experiences, and we meet together at a time. We, we declare we have shared allegiance to Jesus Christ. We have allegiance to one another as members of the church. And then we read the scriptures. We pray. Uh, we sing together. We confess sin. We lean into the assurance of pardon. We take the Lord's Supper. We hear the Word of God preached. And it's in this context that as the Word of God is unfolded, and people that are followers of Christ hear the Word taught, that skeptics and unbelievers who are there are are able to come, and they're able to listen, and they're able to watch, and they're able to see. And it's in this this time of the life of the church, this this rhythm, this weekly assembling together, that believers are equipped, and they're rehearsing the gospel, even through the weekly liturgy, and they're reminded of their commitment to one another and church membership. And then at the end of the service, you know, we fellowship together and we're sent out into neighborhoods and schools and workplaces, and and the burden is to, to go as missionaries of Jesus Christ. So there's there's other things that we do throughout the year, right? And, and there's ways that people do things organically, and there's organizational things. But I think the best thing uh, and the most effective thing is the weekly gathering of the public testimony of faith in Christ and equipping the saints for the work of service, especially the work of uh, evangelism.
0: Is it common then in your context, Eric, that people— Will want to attend a worship service even though they don't believe.
1: Now, on any given Sunday, well, I mean, we're not a big church, right? So, on any given Sunday, you'll have, you know, half dozen people there that are, you know, newish coming and listening to the gospel or coming because somebody invited them. Yeah, i think probably fifteen or twenty people on a Sunday morning would be unbelievers. Some of them are newer. Some of them have been coming a while. But that's, uh, it's pretty routine to have people inviting people to come and people are, are curious about it. Now, I mean, it's not like every, there's church on every corner. So, I mean, people got to drive a ways to come. But there are people that are having conversations, inviting people to church or people that live nearby that are just coming and investigating uh, these things. So I, But I, I don't think it's, it's not – I'm not advocating back to like 1970s where you put up a, a sign and flocks of people come. I'm not saying it's like that. But what I'm saying is primarily the equipping of the saints – to then go into their respective contexts with the gospel and be faithful as Christians doing the Great Commission's work. So in, in wherever they are going, in their neighborhoods, their workplaces, they're equipped to go do these things, and they're reminded of the rhythms of grace through the, through the weekly liturgy, that the gospel is fresh to them, and they're being equipped to go share with others. So it's primarily on the equipping of the saints, but also the benefit of people coming.
0: What does your church do to welcome people Um, new to your church or outside the faith, whether it's in that gathering or in a different place where people are just interacting with unbelievers?
1: Yeah, so I think just in backing up to the overall kind of thing that we try to emphasize is trying to be hospitable and welcoming people that are in. Uh, especially people that are, that would be um, outside of the faith and that are coming. So just a, an overall context of welp- welcoming and trying to encourage people to go talk to people that they don't know and to welcome them in. Um, so that's just an overall culture of it. And then even during the sermon, I would try to address some believers in a way that I think is respectful and at least trying to listen to things that people are saying and trying to Um, Address maybe some uh, apologetic sidebars, defeater defeater arguments that people might have, and try to interact with those. And and I've just talking to unbelievers that might come. It's a context where they're being to ask more questions and interacting with that, and and they can, um, you know, identify with that. But each week we do something really intentional after the service um, that has a dual effect of encouraging. Members of the church, but then also welcoming in people that would um, not be from a Christian background, and that's where we have a just um, a time of fellowship in a hall outside of the worship hall. And so there's light refreshments, and people typically um, stick around for at least an hour plus. Um, you know, some people stay longer, some people stay less. But standing around and talking, and and I've I've noticed is just a, a heavy emphasis on trying to welcome people that are. Uh, newer to the church or maybe newer to um, investigating uh, what the Bible says about Christianity um, there. And so there's lots of conversations and opportunities for people to try to get together and um, meet together, have coffee, and and try to have further conversations.
0: Eric, have you ever needed to change your preaching or your teaching because you found it wasn't understandable to some of these people we're talking about who, who don't know Jesus?
1: Yeah, I feel like this happens all the time. Uh, just as I have conversations with people, I'm, I feel like I'm always evaluating what I'm saying and and what people are hearing. Um, you know I think it's clear on paper or it's clear in my head and then when you interact with people, sometimes it's not as clearly received. Um, so I try to figure out why that might be and then you know go back at it and and uh, see if there's a way to revise things. I mean, I remember even as a, a newer preacher, I was preaching in prisons each week and I'd be there'd be times, people had li- very little exposure to Christian doctrine and yeah, I mean, you'd say something you'd assume a, a ton and you'd have to back up and make sure you, you filled in a lot of a ground there just to make a simple point. Um, and I can just, I'm just thinking back, uh, the last six months or so, um, just probably a half dozen conversations with people that, um, they might, I might ask them, you know, what did you, did you understand what we were talking about this morning or was there a particular point in the passage that was helpful or, or edifying to you. And, and I, I remember there was a Middle Eastern man, one guy in particular, he, he just looked at me. This is like, you'd say Trinity. I don't even know what what you're talking about. What is Trinity? And, uh, and just a major assumption for me to say Trinity in that context. And this guy was newer to the country and he was trying to figure out what, what I was saying, what I meant by that. And so, it just it—it it reminds me of the need to not assume things as I'm as I'm preaching. And I look out on a Sunday morning and see a, a very diverse crowd with different backgrounds, and I'm just reminded the need to, to, for the for the newer believer or somebody who's walking with Jesus for a long time, the need to try to to speak in a way that is understandable and challenging. And I think that's um, that is a challenge as a preacher, but it's something we we need to do if we want to be heard well.
0: So, speaking of that diversity you mentioned here. There's a statement in this section of our Theological Vision for Ministry that is incredibly ambitious. I, I might even go so far as to say it almost appears delusional based on what most churches actually look like. Here's what it says. Quote, we have a vision for a church that sees conversions of rich and poor, highly educated and less educated, men and women, old and young, married and single, and all races. End quote. Eric, have you have you found any of these divisions to be more difficult to overcome in evangelism compared to the others? And I, I just think about one example in particular. I'm wondering, I mean, how do you become a church in a place like Boston um, or anywhere else that's just as good at reaching the highly educated as the less educated, especially when we consider how much those groups have pulled apart in recent decades?
1: Yeah, I... I've thought about this a lot um, over the years just because sometimes you, you know, you you might feel pressure to be a church that is a very diverse church ethnically or um, socioeconomically. And you're looking at evaluating what you're doing and you're wondering why you're not reaching certain types of people, why you are reaching other types of people. And and. And, and I've just uh, over the years I've come to the conclusion that, that I think it depends a lot about where the church is located and where the members of the church live um, so if you're let's say you're in a in a place like where we are um, in the, the Boston area I mean our, our community is extremely diverse um, we're just about three miles right down the street from Harvard University and uh, right close to uh, quick trot to downtown um, so we have we have all kinds of um Um, diversity all the way around us. Um, And so our church, um, thankfully, by God's grace, is a a very diverse church. So we have um, 80 members in the church and 20 different countries represented amongst the, the membership. And I think if you were to walk around Mount Auburn Street right outside the church and walk in the areas, I mean, that would be what you would see as you walk around. So I think that has a lot to do with the location of where we are, the community that we're in, where people in the church live. But if you were to take within our context of our church and push that and say, okay, well, let's say you have somebody who's, um, you know, blue collar workers in the church and that's just where they work and where they spend their time. I mean, they're probably gonna have difficult time reaching MIT professors or Harvard professors just because they spend their time not necessarily interacting with people in those in those contexts. Whereas we do have people that uh, professors at MIT or they uh, work at a university, they're rubbing shoulders with students and other professors each day of the week, and they're interacting with them. So it, I think it depends on where the individual members of the church live, they work, where they where they spend their free time, and so if you're equipping your people to go into those contexts where they are, it's natural for them to be able to reach or at least have influence in those areas so I think I don't think it's a I don't think it's a delusional statement uh, but I think it's that's somewhat conditional because it depends upon where the church might be located there it'd be very very difficult in um, you know maybe a, a place like um, uh, in rural Montana or Idaho to have a place that is a very diverse church um, when you're talking about different ethnicities uh, but there, there are places in the in the country that are that are far more diverse, and it might be more likely and more uh, representative of the community. Um, as far as things that are um, more difficult, one area or the other, I, I just I've seen over the years that it seems like the gospel breaks down a lot of barriers. And um, I think in our context, we have a situation where the the unifying factor, the highest flag that we salute, is the gospel. And when you have a, a context that does look like the community on the outside, but there's no rallying point amongst people on the outside to get together. But in the church, the rallying point is Christ. And so when we show up to move people, when people are moving on a Saturday, people in the neighborhoods are like, how did you get all these people from all over the world to come help you? And it's like, oh, this is the church, this is the church we're a part of. And it blows people's mind because people don't usually get together um, crossing all these lines. But when it's the gospel, that's what bonds people together.
0: Is church planting, Eric, a fad? You've got some experience with this. Let let me explain some context. It seems like since um, this Theological Vision for Ministry was adopted in 2007 that a lot of the most vocal advocates of church planting have made shipwrecks of their churches or even their faith and the faith of others. But what TGC believes and what we've articulated is that, quote, gospel-centered churches will have a bias— toward church planting, end quote, especially because of its evangelistic effectiveness. And I'm wondering, is this a fad, or should this still be the case for us?
1: Yeah, I hope it's not a fad, right? Because I I don't think the Great Commission's a fad, and so I don't think church planting is a fad or should be a fad. I think the, church po- the Great Commission, when faithfully carried out, um, necessarily, will bring about... Um, churches being planted and churches being revitalized. So you might add adding that other category in there, the revitalization of churches. So when Christians are faithful with the gospel and churches are faithful with the gospel, then they want to go reach people in places that need need the gospel. So I'm, I'm hopeful to see that continue on. Uh, I know there's probably less chatter about church planting than, than, uh, 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, but I'm, I think it's a necessary implication of the Great Commission being faithfully carried out. I mean, i I planted a church. I've sent people out to plant churches. I've been part of networks to plant churches. I think having a bias towards church planning, a bias towards multiplication, I think that's good. It's biblical. It's right. It's the burden of the New Testament, and I think it should be the burden of our of our churches. You mentioned um, some of the advocates of church planning and um, the issues that have come. I, I think there's—I can't pinpoint a— you know definite reason why these things are. Uh, but I have an observation that I think is is important. Um, in addition to mission for church planning and people being all about mission, which is really important, I think we need to emphasize ecclesiology as well. Um, because after all, these guys that are going to go out and plant churches and the church planning teams aren't just going to be about evangelism. They're also going to be, need to be about the church at some point. So there needs to be healthy ecclesiology. Churches need to be reproducing healthy churches. And um, guys that are going to go plant churches, I think, not only need to be mission men, but church men. And so it's a, I think that would be a, a, a nice adjustment in the, in the next 10 or 15 years, is that there's a heavy, heavy emphasis not only on mission and church planting, but planting healthy churches from the beginning.
0: Let me close with this, Eric. Compared to when you started in ministry, are you more discouraged or encouraged now about the progress of the gospel as you see God working in evangelism?
1: Yeah, I think I would say I'm. I'm more realistic, Um, and what I mean by that is I think my ratios were off and my reliance was off. Say ten or fifteen years ago, Um, I think I tended uh, just by, in retrospect. I tended to be more dependent upon myself. I, I think I tended to think that I had ability to persuade someone or to be real clear and bring out bring out somebody's conversion. But over the the last ten years, I mean, even though I was you know confessing Calvinist and believing the sovereignty of God and all of that, I I tended to get really discouraged when I didn't see someone converted, and it wasn't that discouragement wasn't 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 um, followed with prayer as much as it was. Just overall discouragement. And so I've seen times where I've been really clear with the gospel and nothing happened. And times when I've been not very clear and said God might use something that I would never expect to bring about somebody's conversion. So uh, I, I think more realistic in the sense that it's really not ultimately um, about me or um, our church's ability to do something. But it's God and his kindness and his faithfulness. So that brings me to dependence And then uh, it brings me to a place where I'm realistic in the sense that I know the gospel is the power of God for salvation. If God attends his word by his Holy Spirit to bring about new life and he calls a sinner unto life, um, he can do that. And he does do that. And uh, I think um, I'm overall encouraged about that as I see people convert and come to faith. And I'm reminded of my own conversion. Let I think overall, more encouraged and more realistic, and that means more dependent.
0: My guest on today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast has been Eric Raymond, Senior Pastor of Redeemer Fellowship Church outside Boston, a TGC blogger, writer and presenter of Gospel-Shaped Outreach. Go ahead and, and pick it up wherever curriculum is sold. You can find it at thegospelcoalition.org. Eric, thanks for joining me.
1: You bet, Colin. Thanks for having me.
0: You've been listening to the Gospel Coalition podcast. For more gospel-centered resources, visit thegospelcoalition.org. Support for this podcast comes from listeners like you. Learn more and join us at tgc.org donate.